Hi, you're now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. We're happy to bring you sermons like this one every week. You can find other sermons at our site at harvest-community.org. So without further ado, here's our speaker. As you read the prayer together, uh, I encourage you to seek to engage your heart as well as we read the passage together. So... This is Acts 17, 24 through 27. Could you read along with me? The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in the temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made every one man, every nation of mankind, to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. Could you go to the next step? Next. Okay. okay, this is the prayer. Eternal God, we give thanks and praise for Jesus' preparedness to show us your true nature and your true character. For in Jesus' words, we hear the resonance of your voice, and in his hands, or sorry, in his deeds, we see the imprint of your hands. We give thanks that Jesus' presence disclosed a new reality at work in the world, the reality of your kingdom, O God, where what was broken is mended, what was afflicted is relieved, what was bound is set free, and what is excluded is included. We pray that our worship here today will enable us to catch a glimpse of your kingdom, to hear the resonance of your voice, to know the imprint of your hand on our lives, and to experience the breath of your spirit in our bodies. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, two weeks in a row, I'm, I'm back again. <laughs> I don't know if that's good news or not. Um, Pastor Frank always gets very concerned because I have a stack of notes up here. But I promise him I only have two main points today. So let's, uh, let's pray. God, I just want to recognize that we're all coming from different places this morning. Some of us are tired and just worn out. We're exhausted with life. And I pray for those people, God, that you would breathe life into them. That you would give them rest today. And some of us have drifted far away from you, God. And you seem very distant today. And I pray for those people, God, that you would show them how near you are. And how great your love still is for them. And God, as we dive into your word, we need to hear from you. We need to hear you speaking into our lives. So I pray that your word would bring forth power and life and conviction and courage this morning. And God, I just recognize before you how much I need you. And so I just depend on you 
to preach your word faithfully. And we pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, shortly after the Civil War, the city of St. Louis decided it is time to finally build a bridge across the great Mississippi River. And there were many renowned and well-known architects of the day. And they were all passed over for little-known James Buchanan Eads. Here's Eads' resume for the job. Engineering degree, none. Bridges built in the past, zero. His work experience was as a gunboat builder and a river boatman. The city was gambling its entire future on this guy. One other architect who was passed up for the job said this in response to the choice of Eads. St. Louis people are fools. And Eads' proposal, not surprisingly, was radical and unorthodox. One expert said that his plan was entirely unsafe and impractical. Just what you want to hear when your city is building a bridge. Entirely unsafe. But the one thing that Eads had knowledge of was the river. He grew up playing in the river. He was a boatman, so he knew the deep and shallow parts. And with his experience of the river, he knew like no one else what it would take to bridge it. And the Eads Bridge was constructed from 1867 through 1874. It's still standing today. And at the time that it was completed, it was the largest arch bridge in the world. The idea of bridge building. In the book of 2 Corinthians, Paul is writing to the church of Corinth. And if you're familiar with the Bible, you know the Corinthians were pretty messed up. They struggled with a lot of things. But Paul says these words to them. God has given you the ministry of reconciliation. And God has committed to you the message of reconciliation. As Christ followers, we have been given the message and ministry of reconciliation. Helping people in this world connect back to God. As Eads was entrusted with the important task of building the bridge across the Mississippi, we have been entrusted to build bridges for the gospel so that people far from God can come to know him. It's kind of crazy to think about. God has put the ball in our hands and his mission to seek and save the loss. And maybe your resume is kind of like uh, Mr. Eads, and you feel quite ordinary for the task. And the reality is you are, and I am. But through the power of the Holy Spirit working in us, God is counting on us to build bridges for him to those who are far from God. So this morning as we dive in, to Acts 17, we'll be reminded that we have the privilege of being bridge builders for the gospel. And we're going to see in, in the Apostle Paul how God used him to build a bridge into the culture of Athens. 
As we dig into the text, I want to build the two main points around two ideas. The ideas of showing and speaking. In order to be bridge builders for the gospel, we need to be showing and speaking. And the first point is showing genuine compassion. Showing genuine compassion to those who are far from God. Acts 17, verse 16. It says, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. Paul is waiting for Timothy and Silas to join him. And while he's waiting, he can't help but notice his surroundings. I don't know about you, but I'm at Starbucks or a place. I love to people watch and just kind of discern what's going on in people's lives. That's what Paul is doing. He's watching the culture. It says that he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. The ESV translation uses the phrase, his spirit was provoked within him. So the sense here is more than just being a little bothered. He was indignated. He was passionately angry. When is the last time that you got provoked in spirit? Last Sunday's Bears game? Sorry, I had to do it. I'll tell you what. I mean, if the Packers lose tonight to Brett Favre in purple, I'm going to puke. I'm going to be provoked in spirit. But when was the last time that you got provoked in spirit about something that really mattered? For me, it was probably last month in the days leading up to September 11th. We all saw the news reports of that church in Florida that was planning on burning the Korans. And I don't know about you, but I was getting lit up within me. That this was being done in the name of Jesus. And Paul is getting riled up. He's getting angry as he watches people giving their worship to pieces of wood and metal. And idolatry basically is just misplaced worship. And it all started because Paul had eyes to see. He had eyes to see what was going on around him. He paid attention to the culture he was in. He stopped and noticed. We live in a fast-paced culture. Everybody is on the move. And in the midst of this pace, people are so caught up in themselves. Some call us the me generation. Because, because we're known as a generation that's all about self-preservation. And I think this sums up some of the great idols of our day. All the isms. Individualism, materialism, consumerism. It's all about me, myself, and I. Because everybody's so focused on themselves. I think there are so many people out there Asking the questions, does anybody notice me? Does anybody see me? Does anybody even care that I'm alive? 
I think if we take time to stop and see people, the opportunities to bridge, build, bridge, build bridges for the gospel are endless in the city of Chicago. Do you have eyes to see people? Will you stop and pay attention to the people around you? And Jesus was a master at this. He walks into town and he sees Zacchaeus in the tree and he calls him out and says, come down. I'm going to your house today. He stops for the woman tugging on his robe who's bleeding. He paid attention to the Samaritan woman at the well that he wasn't even supposed to talk to. Genuine compassion starts with having eyes to see. If we want to build bridges for the gospel, we need to slow down and ask God for eyes to see people as he sees them. So moving on in the text, Paul begins to engage in conversation with the locals. Many of them were philosophers who we will touch on later. And he quickly gains the reputation as being a babbler, which basically means that he was kind of a scrap-picking, second-class scrub philosopher. Others accuse him of promoting foreign gods as he speaks of Jesus and the resurrection. So he's escorted up to the Areopagus. The Areopagus was kind of like the Supreme Court of Athens, the council that exercised jurisdiction in matters of religion and morals. And he was take, as he was taken up before the council, there's a good chance that force was being used. So this isn't just a friendly chat. There's some tension brewing. So remember, Paul is already provoked in spirit. And now force is being used to take him up to the council. So how will he approach this encounter? It says that Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. Paul doesn't snap and say, idiots of Athens, fools of Athens. He applauds the people for being religious in every way. There's not only a sense of respect here, but also humility. If we want to show genuine compassion, we need to have humility with those who are far from God. We need humble hearts. And as Paul acknowledges that people are religious, he recognizes that they are desperately searching to fill that emptiness and that void. In idol worship, people are desperately searching to fill the emptiness. They're looking for God, but they don't know it. And this is still true today. As you too puts it, I still haven't found what I'm looking for. With the Rolling Stones, I can't get no satisfaction. People are looking for anything that will fill that emptiness 
in them. And it often leads to things that are twisted, destructive, and sinful. And of course, there's rebellion in sin. But I think we forget that when people sin, they are often searching. I think that's important. In people sin, they're often searching. Any more of the, the Rings fans in the room? One of the interesting plot lines in the movie or the story, I haven't read the book, so I've got to talk about the movie, uh, The Lord of the Rings, is the character of Gollum. There's this battle that's raging within Gollum between his good and evil nature. In his evil nature, he desperately wants the ring of power back. And he's plotting how he can get it back from Frodo. But in his good nature, he wants to please Frodo. He calls out to him as his master. And throughout most of the story, Frodo is able to look past the dark side of Gollum and really believe the best about him. Frodo has a tender heart towards him because he knows that he has suffered greatly. And time and time again, he shows compassion. With people in our life who are far from God, are we able to look past the things that are misplaced and twisted and destructive in their lives? Remember that they are suffering that they are created in the image of God and they desperately need to be reconnected to our God. I love Henry Nouwen's quote, Compassion can never coexist with judgment because judgment creates distance, the, the distinction which prevents us from really being with the other. Compassion can never coexist with judgment. And it says of Jesus in Matthew 9, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Do we see people like Jesus sees them? Harassed and helpless, suffering and searching. As Nowen says, we need to let go of our spirit of arrogance and condemnation to show compassion to people who are far from God. Friends, to build bridges for the gospel, we need God's eyes and heart to see people in their suffering and ask God to produce within us authentic compassion. It can be very simple. Uh, Yvonne was at work the other night. She doesn't know I'm telling this story, so sorry, honey. But one of her managers was just having a really bad day. She was sick. She was worried about losing her job. And God kind of prompted Yvonne to go buy her a cup of tea and just give it to her, and just listen to her. And she got an opportunity to just pray with this woman and just show compassion to someone who was in need. 
genuine compassion will build relational bridges. And then God will open up doors for us to speak the truth about who God is into their emptiness. So the second point is building bridges for the gospel by speaking for God, by speaking for God. Paul continues, and he's referring to their worship of the unknown God. And he says this, So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship. And this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. See, Paul is constantly looking for connection points within their culture. And he uses the unknown God as kind of a springboard, as a platform to preach about the one true God. I want to take a step back and talk about these philosophers, the Epicureans and Stoics. I know most of you are probably well-schooled in Epicurean and Stoic thoughts, but just bear with me for those who aren't enlightened. Uh, Seriously, this is where commentaries come in handy to a pastor. So the Epicureans, they believe that pleasure is the chief end of life. Does that sound familiar to our world today? Pleasure is the chief end of life. And the second thing is, this is important, They believed that the gods existed, but they believed the gods had no interest whatsoever in human beings. The gods did not care a rip about human beings. And the Stoics were pantheistic in their theology, which means more than being tree huggers, they believed that God and nature were one. And they valued moral duty and self-sufficiency. I mean, think about our culture today, self-sufficiency. It's all over the place. So check out this picture. I had to figure out a way to get this into the sermon this week. Can you imagine what it it would be like to be one of those people in one of those porta-potties? Your world was just about to be rocked and turned upside down. That would be one bad day. Well, in a similar way, Paul is going to speak to these philosophers and turn their worlds upside down about who God is. And so here's kind of the the meat of his sermon. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he made all the nations, that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design 
and skill. I just want to kind of summarize kind of this piece with a few points. The first one is that God is creator. Yes, flip the slide. Paul speaks in to their lives and said, this God, this unknown God, is the Lord of heaven and earth. And the one who gives life and breath and everything else that you have. Remember the Stoics believe that, that God and nature are one. And Paul's saying, no, this God is Lord of all creation. He's above everything he has made. And the second thing is God alone is self-sufficient. Again, the Stoics believed the ideal was their own self-sufficiency. And Paul says that God alone is the one who is self-sufficient in himself. He does not live in temples. He's not served by human hands. He doesn't need anything from us. In fact, we are completely dependent on him. Then Paul is, again, constantly looking for bridges to their culture. And he actually quotes two poems. The first one, for in him we live and move and have our being. And the second one, we are his offspring. So as a child is dependent on his parents, so are we as human beings dependent on God. And then he also says that God alone is sovereign. God is in control of history and the people he has made. God is orchestrating the nations, the appointed times in history, and the boundaries of this land. And so the Epicureans who believe that God is not interested in human beings, Paul's like, no. God is very interested in us. This unknown God rules history and he appoints time for us. And this, I think, is kind of the pinnacle of his sermon. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him though he is not far from any one of us. He's saying there's no one like this God. And he is interested in us. In fact, he wants each one of us to seek, and not only seek, but to find him. And God is not far away. Paul's saying the one who rules the world and the cosmos, the creator and Lord of all, the one you are completely dependent on for life and breath, this God is near and interested in your life. And he wants you to find him. The personal, self-sufficient, sovereign creator of the world is near. I think that was good news to the people of Athens. And I think it's still good news to the people in our world today. Do you know how desperate people are to hear that God is near? Many people today are broken, they're hurting, they're discouraged. Do you know how much they need to hear that the God who created them loves them 
And that he's not far away. He's in fact very near. As I look at our culture, I think one of the growing concerns is a pervasive sense of loneliness. Uh, Statistics say that up to four out of ten Americans struggle with intense loneliness. As we get into people's lives, begin to show genuine compassion, we will be given opportunities to speak into their void, the void they have without Christ. And we have good news to share with them. Do we believe that? That we have good news to share with them. That God is near and can be found. He's not far away or distant. We have something great to tell people with the gospel. That the holy God of this world is near. As Paul moves on, he also tells them that time is running out. Time is running out, so you need to respond. Verse 21, it speaks of the people of Athens. It says, All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking and listening to the latest ideas. Can you imagine someone today, and all they did all day was watch Oprah and Ellen and Leno and Conan and just talk show after talk show. And this is the image that the text portrays of the Athenians. They spent their time talking and listening and gossiping about the latest ideas. And there was no response, no action. And Paul speaks into this a sense of urgency. He says, In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. So for the parents in the room, Remember when your child was an infant and you knew they didn't know the difference between good and evil. There was this age of innocence. But after they turn about a year old, you're kind of waiting and watching. You're watching for that moment when they'll do something wrong and they'll give you that guilty look. And, and when you catch it, it's like it's all over the age of innocence. It's time for you, little one, to be held accountable. And our little princess Jenna is 19 months old right now. And she's well on her way of being a little sinnerling and has crossed over <laughs> that age of innocence. She's way beyond it by now. Paul makes it really clear to the people of Athens, this unknown God is now known to you. You were ignorant, but now... You are not. The age of innocence is is over, and it's time to be accountable. And it's time for you to respond. Paul calls them to repent because judgment is coming. If you've been tracking along, you know up until this point, the name of Jesus 
has not been mentioned, and Jesus has not been referenced. Paul was starting with where they were at and building a bridge onto their own culture. But then he can't help but get to Jesus. He refers to Christ as the one appointed to judge. And then he alludes to the resurrection of Christ as being the proof of all this. The resurrection of Christ is the linchpin to the gospel. That death and sin have been conquered. And that new life is given through Jesus, our risen Savior. Paul is saying it's time, time is running out. It's time for you to respond to what Christ has done. So for those of us in the room who are believers, there are those in our lives who we deeply love. And they might have talked about Jesus or listened to Jesus uh, for a long time. But we know that they have not yet responded personally. May we as bridge builders live with a sense of urgency and have the courage not only to say that God is near, but as the Spirit leads us, it's time to respond to what Christ has done for you. Maybe you're in the room today. You've grown up going to church. You've been around Jesus for a long time. But the truth is, if you're being honest with yourself, you've never really personally responded to what Christ has done for you on the cross. I don't know, maybe God is tugging on your heart today. And just my encouragement to you is please don't wait. Please don't wait. Time is running out. If you need to talk to someone, talk to a Christian friend, or any of the pastors here would love to sit down and chat with you. Just one final comment. Verse 32. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on the subject. At that, Paul left the council some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysus, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. After this majestic oration by Paul, the results were mixed. Some sneered, some procrastinated, and a few responded. As bridge builders for the gospel, we are not responsible for the results. And there's great freedom in that. And yet, we are called to be faithful. Called to be faithful, to show genuine compassion, and speak the truth into people's life that God is near. It's time to respond. And as we do, we'll get to watch God turn people's lives upside down. I love watching God 
turn someone's life upside down. Yvonne and I have lived in our home for the past seven years. And our previous next-door neighbors, we became close friends with. The husband was from a different world than me. He grew up on the south side of Chicago. He was a big guy, had dreadlocks. I was this puny, white, suburban boy. And yet we developed a great friendship. As I got to know him, I got to hear his story and about his pain from his past growing up on the south side. And there was a lot of shame in his life. And a lot of times I just listened and just told him I'd pray for him. But I, w- I remember one day I felt prompted to open up the word of God with him. And I read the story of the prodigal son for him. The story about God's radical compassion. How his arms are open wide to anybody, no matter what they've done. And at the end of reading that story, he kind of looked at me and said, Really? Really? This is what God is like? I'm like, yes, this is what God is like. There's no one else like him. So as time passed, he began to just pray on his own. I could tell God was working in his life. And then fast forward, Yvonne and I were in our living room, sitting with the both of them. And the wife was going through a very difficult time. There were a lot of trials in their life. And she was broken. She was angry at God. Because she was angry at God, she felt so guilty. There was no way God would ever accept her back. And Yvonne and I got to share truth with her that night about God's compassion. And after about an hour, like a light bulb went, in her, went into her head. And she finally figured out that God's love is unconditional. It's a beautiful moment. And as weeks went on, she began to share with us how she was reading her Bible. She was going to church. And she was telling her friends about God's unconditional love, what Christ has done. And then a few months later, um, I'll never forget this day, but I, got, I had the privilege of baptizing her at church and celebrating with her how God had transformed her life as she had responded to the gospel, the good news. I don't know about you, but I love watching God turn people's lives upside down. And this is the great privilege we have as being bridge builders for the gospel. The call to show genuine compassion. Asking God for eyes to see and humble hearts to respond to people. The call to speak the truth that God is near. It's time to respond. As I was preparing this message, I was kind of stirred up as I thought about my kids. 
and the dreams I have for them. And more than anything, I want them to follow Jesus, but also to be bridge builders for the gospel. Uh, So this morning I was with Joshua in the hallway, and I just pulled him aside. And I just looked him in the eye and said, Joshua, I love you. And I told him, I want you to grow up and to be telling people about Jesus as you grow up. That is my dream for my son and my daughter, to be bridge builders for the gospel. And just to drive this home, is there one person in your life that is searching, that is suffering, that is hurting because they don't know Christ. And can you just ask God first that he would be at work in their life and begin praying for their salvation if you haven't already. But then just to look for opportunities to show genuine compassion to that person to respond with humility and have eyes to see their hurt. But not to stop there, but to speak the truth about our great God and who he is. This God really is near. He can be found. We've been invited into God's great rescue operation to bring people back to himself. May we, Harvest Community Church, be found faithful. Be found faithful as bridge builders for the gospel. Amen. Let's just take a minute of quiet before God. I really believe the starting place is just being honest with God. Where are you at with your heart towards lost people? And some of you, if you're honest, you just haven't paid much attention. I just encourage you just to acknowledge that before God. God, we just recognize as a people how needy we are of you. Without Christ, where would we be today? But God, thank you for your great mercy in our own lives. God, that you brought us into the family. That we are no longer stuck in our sin rebellion but we have been redeemed we are new creation through the power of Christ and God I pray that you would reawaken our hearts to people who are far from you God may we not be able to ignore it any longer may we be like Jesus and stop and notice people truly see them 
And God, we pray that you would move our hearts with compassion and love. It's from you, God, not from ourselves. And God, forgive us for our lack of courage, our lack of boldness. God, may we not be afraid to speak the truth of how great you are. To speak that you are the Lord of heaven and earth. You are the ruling creator. And that you don't stand far off from people. That you can be found. May we speak that into people's lives. So God, we look to you. Give us courage. Give us conviction. Give us power from your spirit. But in the end, God, we know that you are mighty to save. That you are the God who brings salvation and redemption. That even today, all around this world, God, you are rescuing people bringing them into the family. So we praise you for that, God. We thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.